This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, ready at last to share our secrets with the world. But is the world wise enough to handle them? Today we're talking about Marvel's Black Panther franchise, begun by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby in 1966. Most recently, taken on in Ryan Coogler's Wakanda Forever film and the comics by Tanahashi Coates, John Ridley, Reginald Hudlin, Roxanne Gay, and others. I'm Mark Lintemeyer, too tall but otherwise qualified to play the role of Everett Ross in tonight's presentation. You guys know who this is. This is Lawrence Ware coming to you from Oklahoma City, and I love Black Panther. Hi, my name's Anthony LeBlanc, and I'm actually currently in Albuquerque working, and I love Black Panther. It's one of my first loves along with the X-Men when it came to comics. I'm Viola Berlue out of Boulder, Colorado, and I would consider myself a card-carrying member of the Dora Milaje fan club, for sure. Ah, look at that. Nice little reference. Like it. Excellent. Yes. Though I'm sure I could have used our regular crew in full for just hanging out in the movies. I want an excuse to go deep. I never read a Black Panther comic at all before trying to prep for this. But, you know, this has been a few. That is not something you want to tell the people. <laughs> Do not tell the people that. And now I've read a lot of that. You're like admitting to that. That is crazy. Go ahead. I'm the, so I'm the newbie here, but you guys are all more steeped. Mark, did you make Black Panther quotes on your Twitter or Instagram feed before you read it? I Absolutely, he should have. He should have. That's what he should have done. So Vi is like an actual comics academic. Can we have you start with where you're coming from with this? We'd had you on to talk about Wonder Woman, about sort of feminist stuff, which, of course, the new movie is chock full of feminist stuff, you know, sort of by necessity that we now have the, the hero Shuri. But I wasn't still wasn't sure when I reached out to you since you had opted out of Batman. You said you were not a Batman fan. <laughs> But you were down for this. What's what's the difference? This is basically the African Batman. Oh, oh my God. What are you doing? What are you doing? Wow, wow. Wow. In terms of powers and Do you you want us to fight you? What are you doing? (laughs) Like, stop talking. Viola, please tell us about where you're coming from because Mark is on some (laughs) bullshit right now. Please, Viola. I won't comment on any of the the Batman portion, but uh, (laughs) my orientation to Black Panther comics really comes out of studying comics as they go from really censored in the 50s and then starting to be super politicized in the 60s and 70s as comic creators kind of decide, we think that these should be for everybody and not just for kids, in part because their market to kids had been so slashed due to censorship. So I really enjoy kind of the early iterations of the Black Panther comics for all of their weirdness and the fact that they're written, you know, by Stan Lee, who is obviously not a black man. And they're definitely, it shows a lot of the time. (laughs) But I, I like them historically because they're so different from what's kind of being produced in the era that comes before them. And then to see them adapted throughout time and then into different media I think it's really fascinating um, and speaks to kind of a longevity of political discussions, the way that they talk about race, the way they talk about nationality, the way they talk about things like feminism and female characters. So I'm super excited to hear what everybody has to say, particularly as we go from comics to movies, because as an aside, I love the movies. (laughs) Anthony, you told me this was like one of the things, the foundational things along with X-Men that you were raised on in terms of comics. What era is that? What is this the Christopher Priest stuff? Is that is this before that? Yeah, it's it's a mixture of Priest stuff, but then also, you know, when I started reading X-Men, it's kind of going into the world of like, okay, what other things am I into? And that really led me down that Marvel is complicated and has complex characters and DC's full of super powered weirdos who aren't really human. So that is a, also the big difference between Batman 
and Black Panther, right? Yes, Black Panther is a rich person with fun toys and a lot of training, but there's like all these wonderful moral things around him, even in the world of your kind of Defenders version of of Black Panther. So I think one of the things that I loved about Black Panther as a, as a whole, when I think when I, you know, the first time I ever came on the show was talking about Afrofuturism. Like the, I love science and science fiction. And, you know, Star Trek is a dear to me because it's a place where you see black folks doing things that, you know, couldn't even do in regular yes, life at the time. Yes. And there's something the same way that Black Panther kind of also exhibits that, that for me as a young black kid was seeing like the most powerful nation in the world is a bunch of black people. And, and no matter how you know, weird it might have had that well-intentioned white writer, you know, it, it still is something to hold on to there. The same way as Gene Roddenberry, you know, like Gene Roddenberry isn't perfect in his you know, portrayal of race in the future, but he's doing more than other people did. And I think that's why I loved Marvel as a whole and also Stan Lee as a whole, like a person who's willing to take chances and do things that other people wouldn't do. And that kind of stood out to me as a kid of like recognizing like, this is from when? This is from, okay, mm. the 60s? And it's the same way I actually approached the original Star Trek. That was the same thing for me. Wonderful. Lawrence, were you a comics first guy with this? Is this this part of your comics upbringing? Interestingly, I mean, very similarly to what Anthony was talking about. Like, I'm not a big Star Trek guy, but I really love Deep Space Nine because of that whole portrayal of the black captain and his relationship with his uh, son. I actually wrote about that for for Star Trek uh, before. But no, I was more of a comics person primarily. I started off really with the X-Men in the 90s. It's kind of really where I kind of got in. And then I then branched out to Black Panther. And then once I realized that Black Panther had a whole kind of archive, I began to kind of go back and read the old stuff. And I have a first edition of the original Black Panther comic. Well, not comic, but he was in, in the Fantastic Four. Got a, he was first introduced. I got a original copy of that. So by being interested in Deep Space Nine, that made me interested in Afrofuturism. And so I was interested in the things that were going on with there. So I just kind of had a really archaic, weird kind of pass into Black Panther leading up to the first film. And, you know, in the run of that film, I read, I met Ryan Coogler. He became a friend of mine. And then I was kind of behind the scenes, what was happening with the next film and how long was going on and all the drama. I'm not going to talk about that. Anyway, there was drama with vaccines and stuff like that. So I've always been involved in the Black Panther story either directly with Ryan Coogler and just kind of knowing him and being around there and, and meeting Michael B, but he was not really kind of involved in knowing me, but, and then seeing how was it developed and then also having a real genuine love for the comic and doing like a public discussion with Christopher Priest and all that kind of stuff. So I've always kind of circled around it because I really love that comic. I really love what the possibilities that that comic kind of brings up and what it kind of says about the possibility of black people being in the future. I mean, Growing up, I never saw anything that had Black people in the future. But this centering of Black identity and looking off into the future was very fascinating to me. I really, really enjoyed it. So, yeah, my love of the comic goes deep, but it starts off with the X-Men. <laughs> I started off with <laughs> loving Gambit, honestly. Like, that was, my, that was my, my entry point into comics. But then from there, I branched off and kind of got deep into the, all the other stuff. So I'm not as... Erudite as Viola. She, she's a scholar. You know, I'm not doing that scholarship. Like, you want to talk about philosophy? I can do that. But as far as a scholar, I'm not, do- I've made some graphic novels and stuff like that. But I'm not a scholar of that. But like, as a fan, I'm a hardcore fan. I love it. Love it, love it, love it. 
Love Gambit was your way in. That was mine too. Oh, so I love I'm, Gambit. I'm, I'm Creole. I'm Creole, so I was like, yeah, oh, that's I you into Man, it. When I was younger, I tried to throw. <laughs> I tried to throw like cards, expecting it to happen, like it would work. It just it never worked for me. It was a terrible experience. But I love Gambit. That was my that was my entry point. I'm gonna see my role here primarily as making sure. I want this to serve as make sure we don't completely disappear into the geekery of people who already know the names of people and stuff. I understand. So yeah. I, I brought up Christopher Priest. So he started writing black author, obviously, but had already been a, at Marvel for a while, actually wanted to do Daredevil, was disappointed that he got assigned to do Black Panther. And he's like, what can I do to make this guy that's just sort of been standing in the back of the Avengers? I didn't realize that there wasn't, even though like, yes. He goes back, was introduced in Fantastic Four in what year? 66. Yep. And he was in the Avengers not too long after that, but there wasn't a standalone comic for a lot of the time, or the standalone comic was Jungle Action, you know, which was taken over. It was a pre-existing like jungle comics genre, which would be like Tarzan and people like that, that a Don McGregor, this a white author at the time in the early 70s said, can we at least have a black hero in this? So they pulled in Black Panther, you know, that had already been invented and made him the center of that comic. But it's still, it sort of was stop and start. Jack Kirby took it over for a while, but completely ignored what McGregor had done and created basically a different character in the late 70s. All this stuff uh, you can get in detail. Marvel themselves has put out a history of comics podcast for Black Panther specifically. And it's just like a six episode thing. So that really was helpful to me. Priest was successful in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I was very surprised reading the intro that he wrote to that volume that I read, where he said, coming to America, the Eddie Murphy movie, like that was a direct influence. Like, how can we have the cool African king who's coming over and sort of slumming it in New York and dealing with the regular people? which is something that had happened in the 70s comics already. It wasn't like it all took place in Wakanda. And that Everett Ross character, who is actually the point of view character in the Christopher Priest stuff, because he was like, I don't know how to make the Black Panther relatable. Let's just make him really cool and inscrutable. And he's playing N-dimensional chess. He's so smart. So we'll put everything in a guy explicitly referenced Lawrence after Chandler from Friends. Everett Ross, the Martin Friends. Friends. Yes. Yes. Is why I say <laughs> the so Martin much. Freeman character in that. So he was sort of like expressing the comic, the average comic reader, white young punk who would be skeptical of this hero, skeptical of the whole thing. And then, you know, throughout Priest's run, this character becomes more and more respectful and enamored of the Black Panther in a way that he, that's what he wanted the, the reader to do. So this was now all the writers, like they dwell on the psychology of, T'Challa and Shuri as, you know, first person perspective thing. But Priest, the guy that sort of broke him, broke him out into the, made the, the modern movies possible, did not actually think that was possible. He thought this is an inscrutable character. That's a wonderful history, Mark. I, I appreciate you doing the history. That's a good job. I will say, just commenting on the history, I'm not going to go too deep on this. There is a market difference between white people writing Black Panther and, and black people writing Black Panther, especially at the time period. Like just having, the sensibility necessary to kind of make that character both relatable to black characters and white characters. Because part of what's going on here is that they're trying to figure out how can we market it to white people? And that's what they're trying to figure out. They're trying to figure out how is it possible to get white people to be invested in this and spend their, you know, their dollars to buy these things. And so I do think that what you're seeing with Priest and really with Hudlin, especially, you're seeing them really pivot away from thinking about white people first 
to thinking about black people first. And if white people come along, then great. But honestly, we're going to talk to black people. We're going to center a black story. We're going to tell a story from a particular perspective. And so I think that that is honestly a a major, major pivot in how uh, this stuff was written, how it was conceptualized, and really why it kind of remains. Because if it remained in the previous way with white people and a white sensibility being at the core, it wouldn't be as popular as it is now. It's them making that transition and that shift to centering the Black identity, to centering Black stories that makes it as resonant and as popular as it is now, particularly with that first film. Second film, we can get into it. I have issues. But that first film, without a doubt, was so resonant because it was centering a Black story. And Black folks who knew the comics, we saw it coming. We knew it was going to come eventually. But a lot of folks were like just flabbergasted that this big Marvel machine was center a Black story like that. Like, they just couldn't believe that it would happen. So I think that centering that Black story is what makes it so resonant and why it really, really kind of remains as popular as it is now. Yeah, and I would say the thing is, um, I don't know, Lawrence, if you got this information from Priest himself, but I think the one thing that's also interesting about the time of his takeover and bringing that comic is that the 90s was the era of that split of the X-Men in which yeah. they did start to do things of pulling the comics together as a thing. Where, where there wasn't as much of that. You do it for a while, you blow it up. You do it for a while, you blow it up. There still were kind of a through line consequence of things. So you have a Black Panther that's created that then has to exist a certain way as he goes into other comics and deals with crossover events. That land of like really doubling down on, you know, what DC was doing a little bit before in the 80s, you know, Marvel really doubling down on like, we're having crossover events every couple of years now. And I think that's the thing I feel like he had the awareness of like, I got to make a character that can exist in this world and still be who he is and not fade back into the background like he did previously in the Avengers and the Defenders, you know, where he's not ever really the main character or really a main player. <laughs> No, you're absolutely right. I, I did a, a, a public discussion with him. It's been, I want to say four or five years. It, it's, it's been a while, but he came here and they brought him here and we had this public discussion. And that was one of the questions that I had. Was it that there were all these kind of, because the story of the comics in the eighties and the seventies is that you had certain characters that remained who they were, but a lot of the characters, they changed them over a lot. Like there was not that much consistency in the characters, both in DC and in Marvel, but in the 90s, you're right. You begin to see this transition where now they're beginning to think, okay, we need to make these characters kind of consistent because he needs to be the same person he is in this comic and in that comic and in that comic. And you begin to kind of get that through line. Like they have a certain kind of personality and that personality, it may change because something crazy happens and they switch bodies or something like that. But for the most part, that person remains consistent. There was this kind of conscious effort on the part of Marvel to make really not just Black Panther, but all their comic guys, like, consistent. Before then, there was oftentimes a lot of shift, and depending who was in charge of writing it, the person's personality could waver widely. And now you're seeing, too, with the success of the movies in the MCU, a dependence on the MCU for the comics, which I think kind of speaks to this consistency that you're talking about, right? Like, if something is massively popular in the films, the comics are going to start to reflect that to try to draw audiences back into the medium, which is a really fascinating back and forth because that is not what the comics looked like. Before they were movies, they looked vastly different, right? They're not always talking to each other. But now with the success of the films, the comics have to pay almost some kind of deference to the on-screen versions. Otherwise, audiences may not be as interested in going back to the source material. We hope that they are because as you pointed out, like they're fantastic. It's... <laughs> 
it's a really interesting take on a character and a really interesting history, but it has to now talk to this like multi-billion dollar adventure that's being created with its own crossover events and with its own different stories that differ really, you know, vastly from some of the comics, particularly like Civil War and those events uh, from the 2000s. Mm -hmm. I mean, but let's just be honest. We read the comics. We do. But the vast majority of the people who consider themselves MCU heads and deep into the Marvel lore and all the kind of stuff, they're interested in the movies. I would be shocked if they read maybe five comics a year. And so I think that what's happening is that they're going where the money is. They realize that they have this multi-billion dollar. I mean, they're making a lot of money with these movies. Maybe you can sift a little bit of that money into the comics, but you're not going to sift that much into the comics. And so I think that the comics are just representing the reality of where we are, that everyone is so invested in these films. Well, most people are invested in the films. A lot of people have fallen off. I've fallen off here recently. I'm really a disappointment with phase four. We can talk about that you know, if we want to. But the point is, a lot of people are invested in the films. And so since they're so invested in the films, the comics just represent, like the comics are almost like a vehicle for the film. I mean, yeah, they're telling their own stories to a degree, but like by and large, those comics are really dependent on what the films are doing as far as making money. I don't know if this is just in the Black Panther verse or whether throughout Marvel, but whereas, you know, Don McGregor, this early jungle action slash Black Panther writer was just <laughs> like, uh, you know, a comics fan who became an intern, who became an editor and eventually was given something to write. Now it's like, oh, we're going to hunt out Tanashi Coates, like this guy already known for being a public intellectual. And the other recent writers, Reginald Hudlin and John Ridley, are both filmmakers. So Ryan Coogler himself could be asked, he probably has been asked, but you know, yeah, if he yeah. had time, would be writing plots for these things. So I don't know if that's a good thing that you're sort of keeping the quality of the comics, whether higher or just more like films, more action filled, more uh, intellectual in the case of Tanahashi Coates and getting Roxanne Gay, you know, you know, a familiar name for me just reading like salon.com or whatever, well-known political commentator. Is that a reaction to like, Exactly what you're saying. Most people just watch the films, but if you, if you can attract them into the comics by getting either these big names or just by giving a product that is very filmic in its conception, then maybe you'll, I don't know if there's been a jump in comic sales at all due to the success of the MCU. I have a friend who writes for Marvel, and one of the things that I know, he's written Gambit, actually, <laughs> through a, a run of Gambit, and he's written some other things, Gen X and stuff like that. But I, I know that one of the things he talked about was the idea that there is a little bit of that world of playgroundness, of where there is a, you know, not a directive at all, but a known effort that post Iron Man of like, we can mine things from this world. So we should be able to use the comics in a way to try things out and play with things and, and follow stuff through that we could eventually mine for stuff. That is definitely a thing that has happened and is happening. So I think that's why you would look to those types of humans to play in that playground. Because, you know, you have the land of, like, is it 100% all of Roxanne Gate going to storm up and stuff? No, but you do have a love interest between two Dormelage that happens, which is from that Women of Wakanda world. So there's a, there's a lot of that I know from talking to him about that, especially as he worked on different projects of like, oh, he was getting meetings with things as far as like, have these ideas or this idea has happened, I can now come, you know, the writers in the comics aren't directly there, but they know that that's part of what they're doing is creating playground space. 
as you said, Mark, whether or not the movies are bringing people back to the comics, you know, I don't know if that's always true, unfortunately, right? Like we, as as you've said, Lawrence, right, we talk about the comics because we can and we know them, but the medium is hurting and it's, you know, it's starting to pitter off. And so you hope that like with these big names and with these storylines that are directly connected to the movies that people do go back, but I, I think it's probably not often the case. Hopefully that changes because it's such a rich storytelling device. And you really get things in comics that I don't think you see in the films, just by nature of them being comics. But it's not always that people are going backwards to find them as much as we talk about the relationship between them. I also, just with the specific comics, this that detour, comics won't die anytime soon because the most popular medium that is still keeping it alive is its counterpart, which is manga is huge. And so I think comics can still hang on a little bit to that coattail. You know, maybe not in the same form, but as long as manga is as big as it is right now, anime fans go back and forth. That is a known thing. And I think that's the reason why comics haven't died off, because there's some of those people who will still do that with their Marvel fandom and keep a little little lifeblood shots in there. That is a great point, man. Manga is huge. I don't know how much money they're bringing in, but they're exploding right now. Manga is crazy. Okay, Relate that. Yes. Okay. Here's my issue. I don't like it when people who are not comics fans write comics. Do not like it. And so I'm not talking about like you read a comic every now and then. I'm talking about a comics fan. Like, you know the comics, you know the stuff. I'm not going to say any names, but recently there's been a lot of people who Marvel in particular have brought in to write for Black Panther, to write for the stuff around it. And like, they don't know how to tell a story in a comic format. They're telling a different kind of story using comics to tell that story. And there's just, there's a rhythm to comics. There's a particular way that you write comics. There is a story, like a miniaturized story, you leave it on a cliffhanger, but you're also telling this larger story. Like there's an art to telling that kind of story. And Marvel brought in a lot of people. They are good writers. I like them. They're actually friends of mine. I like them a lot, but they're not comic writers. There is something that needs to happen that makes a comic a good comic. And it takes time. It takes work. It takes like knowing that history. And every time I see Colts was writing, you know, Black Panther, I didn't love it. He does a lot of, it's not a voiceover because it's not a voice. At all. It's just narration bubbles, narration, narration bubbles over action scenes. So he could write an essay. He needed to know this stuff before he started writing the comic though. Right. But Lawrence, would you say though, except though that good ideas out Trump that and you let them, build the plane while they fly the plane because like intergalactic wakanda is pretty awesome dude okay it's a great idea it's a great idea bring somebody else in to write that shit then like i have no problem with you having a really good idea great ideas are important i believe that but to execute that great idea you got to have somebody holding your hand and figuring out how to do it well in this case they got him a very veteran illustrator who was supposed to kind of work with him on how to frame these things because he's are not- you defending him I'm just saying, based on what I heard in actually the second podcast that I should recommend is there's a Wakanda Forever podcast that Tanahashi Coates is the narrator of. Also, very manageable, only six or seven episodes. And yeah, so those two things I would highly recommend. I think this thing of who gets to be chosen to be a comic writer and are we having that homegrown talent thing anymore is a great discussion, but let's not have more of that now oh, come on um, man because <laughs> there's so much black panther the reason why i think that detour was important is that in marvel's need to deal with the representation issue of mm-hmm. like who is writing the stories 
you're having to move out of that because there's not as many folks that you have homegrown to then be those folks who are able to, to deliver that. Or you're looking for people who are working in other spaces. Like think about Rock, you know, Rex and Gay. Like you're someone who is thinking these other spaces that's going to bring that sensibility to yes. this black comic. And especially as a female identifying human in that comic as well. You know, like that's what you're looking to do is like, it's more important for us to have that POV and see what they do with it, especially. And I think the movies are the thing that is driving that too. You know, in that land of having these movies, you're not, it's still reflecting in all the mediums of like, we have to be more careful and more interested in like, who's in our rooms, who's doing the stuff, who's making the stuff. And that means you have to go outside the norm and make some people learn on the job. Sure. <laughs> you know? Sure. Marvel and really DC as well, they need to do a better job. And they're doing a better job now. They need to do a better job of bringing in people of color, people who identify differently to the writing space and giving them opportunities so they wouldn't have to go and get a person and let them figuring out as they're writing it, right? You would have somebody who's in, who knows the background, who can help tell the story the way that you would like for them to tell the story. So they, they do need to make those kind of investments. And they're starting to make those kind of investments. But for just like every other kind of space, for many years, there was always this kind of glass ceiling if you were black. Every now and then you would get a priest. Every now and then you'd get a huddling. But there wasn't like a large number of people coming up through the ranks. So they've made those kind of changes now. They're trying to do it better now. With the exception, of course, if they want to reach out to the director of Africana Studies at Oklahoma State University. They don't uh, want to talk to me. To ask, to ask, <laughs> I'm too radical. To they don't want to talk to me. <laughs> Let's stop for just a moment for me to tell you about another podcast. Have you ever been watching a movie or TV show and wondered if the reactions or behaviors of the characters are a good representation of how it would look in real life? Or has it not crossed your mind before, but now you're curious? Well, since you're thinking about it now, we've got the podcast for you. Pop Psych 101 is a pop culture mental health podcast. In an effort to educate and normalize two therapists, Ryan Engelstad and Dr. Haley Roberts talk candidly about mental health and human behavior through the lens of movies, music, books, and TV. Common pop culture mental health tropes are analyzed, and the accuracy of their portrayals are in question, for better or worse. If we really want to normalize the conversation about mental health, then we need to start having real and normal conversations. Find Pop Psych 101 anywhere you listen to podcasts or at anchor.com slash pop psych 101. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. What I was trying to shift us to is just let's talk about the Black Panther as a character. And I guess by extension, Shuri as a character and some of the other adaptations of I was looking after seeing the McGregor comics for this, his rogues gallery. I'm, I'm very interested in. We talked about this with <laughs> Batman and you know, that when you make this transition into the films to like a more realistic style, I didn't realize that the character, the villain man ape was actually <laughs> yeah. the same guy as this, like, you know, the leader Mbuku, the leader of the different tribe who fights Black Panther at the beginning of the first film. I didn't realize it was the same character because he's just not as silly and over the top as this guy with a giant uh, gorilla (laughs) skull on his head. I don't know. That seems like a cool prop, but like I'm getting, I'm going off my own topic. What? Yeah. Where where do you guys want to start in terms of 
the characterizations and is he supposed to be funny? Is he supposed to be relatable? Is he self-tortured like a Batman? What do you guys make of this character? And it's Mark, you keep going back to Batman, man. I I think you have a thing about Batman. I don't know what's going on with you and this Batman. If you're rich (laughs) and you dress in black and some of the time, anyway, I I, I didn't make up this Batman comparison. No, 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 no. Iron Man is also a Batman, right? It's just rich people with toys. No one is Batman, dude. No one is Batman. Batman is Batman. I would say it depends on the era and the time, right? And that that's becomes kind of what the unification of characters things becomes interesting. And I actually do like about the current iteration of who Black Panther is, that he is a mix of, you know, especially from 2000s on, this fantastical human, right, who can do all things, but and is a king but also has to earn that kingdom, right? There's something cool about the idea that he can't just become Black Panther. He has to, you know, go through the challenges to become Black Panther. But still, like, the herb kills you if you're not of noble birth. But it's kind of funny. But just the idea, I think, though, that he is a mixture of this person that's above us, but also someone we can relate to because of the struggles he has and those kinds of things. And yet he has to work hard and earn those things. And I think that going on a limb here, you know, I think that is a part of, why I love also the priest world. And even if it is written, try, you know, things before were written, trying to hold on to those people. And I'm sure he had to in that time to still be working about relatability. There still is a, there's a thing in there as a black person and that idea of that, you, no matter how famous you are, you still are at that disadvantage, right? You still have to earn it and push that thing. And I always tell, I always tell my other folks who are in a affinity group of some kind when it comes to performing, no matter what that orientation might be, that you can be that as a straight white male in comedy or performing, you can be mediocre and just exist. But if you're in a performance, they're going to remember that person, that affinity group who stands out is either good or bad. So if you're really bad, if you're bad, you're going to stand out. If you're good, you're going to stand out. If you're mediocre, they're going to see you as bad. That eye is on you all the time. So in that plan of where even as the leader of this country, he has to earn that thing. Even as the most powerful nation, he's still a black person inside of this very white driven world. And I think that one of the things I think is cool about Wakanda Forever that at the beginning of that movie pushes still too is that idea that even if you have all the power and the toys, people still see you as the other. People still see you as less than where these other countries are like, we demand this. And it's like, well, who are you to demand from this? If I was a white country, would you be doing that same thing? No. <laughs> and I think that's baked into who Black Panther is that, you know, a king who has to work to be the ruler. When I think about Black Panther, I think about a person who's not very funny who's very regal, how do I say this, aloof, a person who has the weight of an entire kingdom on his shoulders. And one of the things that I wrestle with, is that something that the white people who were in charge of Marvel kind of placed upon Priest to make him that way? Or did Priest make the decision to make him that way? Because that's really kind of where you begin to see some consistency in his character. I just wonder about that because I do think that there is like a sense that like he has to be the best of everything. He can't have flaws. That seems inconsistent. That doesn't seem realistic. That's, just, that's not like a per- the way a person would, would genuinely be. Maybe they would be. I don't know. It's just that it just seems like because he's the king and because he has all of this like expectation, all this weight upon him, both inside the comic and then just our expectations as black comic readers, but we need to see the best in this guy, he's just so unrealistic, honestly. Like, he's just so, he's great at everything. He's so always really cool and smooth. He's always really saying the right thing at all the time. And I just, 
I just wonder just how there were later comics where he was able to kind of be a little bit of more of a human, like when he was kind of dealing with Storm and all that kind of stuff. Like you saw the, like the humanity of who he was, but at the very beginning, he was always very regal and the and like the best of the best. I think about just like the weight of representing the best of blackness at all times. It fits him because he's the king, but I wonder if maybe. I would have liked to see a little bit more of who he was as a, as a person away from the crown. And with the films, for example, we see that. Like we see him wrestling with his lineage. We see him wrestling with what's the right thing to do and like with being a real person and him having children, you know, all that kind of, like we see that in the films. Here's a hot take. Like, but doesn't that also fit though, the dynamic of like, think about most of the comic is who he's seen by with other teams, other people outside of that, his people, right? And then we have Storm, you have someone he can actually talk to and relate to. The whole storyline of him dealing with the ancestors once he kind of forgives, or not forgives, but doesn't retaliate against Namor. Even his father's like, who are you? Like, you killed our people. Go take care of him. And he has to struggle with that. But when he's in front of the Avengers or with the Defenders, he has to be a perfect black. He has to be the black excellence, right? Just like we in real life, when you're in your job. You have to be better than the best because you're always looking for a reason for you not to be good. But when you're with someone you trust, like Storm, you can now be that person that you want to be. Or your sister, you can be that person you want to be. You know, and that's the thing with Shiri, right? She's the person that's pushing on the other side of like, why are you being like that? Like she is the more militant one, you know? Because so. Shuri is a completely different story. Like Shuri is militant as hell. Like Shuri, I think that you have a really good point. I didn't think about this. But you're right that when he's in front of the Avengers or the Defenders, or whatever, he's aloof and well-spoken and kind of robotic. But when he's with Storm, he's definitely himself. You're right about that. That's a good call. And I think the movies, too, do, as you said, like a good job of kind of almost disarming the audience in that way. Like the very first scene that you have with T'Challa is him being embarrassed in front of his ex and Dakoye teasing him about it, right? And that's that's very human <laughs> that's and it's very that's flawed. True. and. But I do wonder if that's an attempt to not rewrite, but to reframe the character from the comics, or if it is the MCU mold that most characters fit into, right? The movies have to have that kind of sense of humor. They have to have a little bit of the bathos, the silliness to cut any serious tension. And I wonder if that's a product of just MCU writing, or if it is deliberate in a way to create a more human version of T'Challa on screen. Well, so think about the first time you though saw T'Challa. He was regal, noble, trying to save his father's life and kind of somewhat having a back and forth with between who, what side to choose, right? In that world of Iron Man and Captain America. Like in Chap Civil War, he is very much the epitome of, I am this face of the Black Panther, right? And then I love that vibe that the first time you see him in his own movie, when he's with his mm. people, mm-hmm. it's now more relaxed versus who he is with the Avengers when he first sees them and not weary of who they are. The fact that he doesn't have a secret identity, that this is like his ceremonial garb. It's not his disguise. Although I guess like that was an issue in the 70s stuff that the American public did not know that he was actually a black guy. That's just like he's Black Panther, member of the Avengers, but who's under the mask? We don't know. Like it was, you know, the normal superhero thing. But in all the modern iterations, it's like everybody knows who he is. So his public persona, just like any politician or celebrity, I could just take off the mask and I can be myself. Like, no, I have to have that conflict even when I'm, there's no real difference. It's just a matter of like, is he actively fighting someone or doing a ceremony or not? And in fact, we'll just very early on, I think, I don't know which writer introduced it, the Iron Man trick of, I don't have to carry a suit around and change into it. I can just press the button on my head and 
whoop, I'm Black Panther, like in a second. And the aesthetics between Civil War and the Black Panther movie are so vastly different too. Like at times to me, they feel like they're completely separate stories, Uh, you know, drawing from the influence of the 70s and and the comics and whatnot. But oh my gosh, Civil War, Black Panther, as as you're saying, like the stoic nature, the way they portray the Dora in that movie too, they're almost not talking to each other. When you encounter Black Panther in his own film, right, he is a completely different character with almost a completely different personality. They remove some of the jockiness, I feel like, <laughs> from Civil War, where he's taunting Natasha and he's taunting the Dora, and they, they make him more human. And to your point, Mark, they don't necessarily make him so removed from his own superhero identity that you can't relate to him. Like he's a human person and he has an interesting story because he's human, not because he's just the Black Panther. Any thoughts about like, I'm a super stud that he dates a lot of women in the comics. He goes through like several different <laughs> before sort of settling on. So I read that the Hudlin, you know, where he gets married to a storm, which it seems like they'll never be able to do that on screen. Like for all the various logistical reasons, unless it's like the next generation. 2025. Uh, well, we can we can get to know. that. Of is the fact that Chadwick Boseman passed away, and for this film at least, they decided that no more Chadwick Boseman Black Panther, only Shuri Black Panther. Are we just going to exist? There's a part in the comics where Shuri is the Black Panther. I think there's like a female version of just about every male superhero. And Shuri's Black Panther, while well, Black pa- they're both Black Panthers for a long period of time until she dies. In quotation marks, in quote, air quotes. Yes. The fact that in comics, every dead person comes back. So, you know, you could think in, well, the MCU, either they're going to double down and like, let's explore Shuri as a as a character, maybe in more depth than she was even given in the comics. Like, give her at least another whole movie or two. Or are we going to have, you know, his son grow up or an alternate dimension, <laughs> non-Chadwick Boseman, Black Panther? I think both those things are going to happen. <laughs> I, that's my money. My money is that you're going to have young T'Challa eventually grow up and probably be some kind of young Avenger thing. You're probably going to have some multidimensional, you know, in your battle world, whatever it happens, some version of T'Challa show up and and Shiri will also be Black Panther. And it'll be that same world of like, you already had a a whole through line comic where they're both Black Panthers, you know, and you could have fun with that. Chadwick Boseman was so beloved that they could not go back and bring him back. But not him. But I think even with Kevin Feige said in his thing, he said, like, we knew it wasn't the right time to do it then. That's why you have his son show up. People would rebel. No, 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 no. no. But he's he's not going to be, he's not going to be. If it was Denzel as elderly Black Panther. Get the (laughs) hell out of here. It's not going to (laughs) be. Well, I think it's it's the same world of where it's not going to be a permanent. It would be something like, It'd be the same as John Krasinski playing Reed Richards. It'd be something like that, where it's a one-off thing that happens in King Dynasty or or Secret Wars and something like that. And it'd be a fun thing where he probably exists and dies and it might be somebody famous. And then eventually, whoever they choose to be the true next Black Panther will be whoever T'Challa's son is. It would be that kid, grown up, will become T'Challa. And it will be not... Chadwick Boseman, but T'Challa Jr. as Black Panther. So they could tell a lot of the same stories. They can tell a lot of the same stories. And he's hanging out with Haley Stanfield and Stinger, and they're all doing their Young Avengers shit. You know, too much to hope for. Maybe my resistance to this is that they have so shit the bed with like the fourth iteration of the Marvel Universe. Spider-Man was good. Black Panther was good. Everything else was kind of middling to terrible. 
WandaVision is awesome. Miss Marvel is awesome. WandaVision, Loki, even Hawkeye. I love Hawkeye. You guys are talking about TV shows. I'm talking about the movies. They 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 were terrible with the movies, man. But who? But you have to think of the long game, right? Yes, it, Phase Four. I think oh, when we come back to gosh. it. I'm not gonna, trying to fight with you, man. I'm not. No, no, no. Understand, understand, understand. You're gonna look. You're gonna, this, this does relate, Mark. I think you're gonna look back on Phase Four and like, yeah, is it perfect? No. Are there a lot of bombs in it? Yes. But I think the setups are interesting. And the idea that I really do think that the long-term plan of this is who are the future Avengers? Who are the young Avengers is what they're building. It's Miss Marvel. It's Patriot. It's all these people you're putting into this world now. And then eventually you will see them along with probably another Black Panther. <laughs> you know, Shiri's still kind of young enough, but not really. But she can be that bridge between the idea of like T'Challa's son will be the next Black Panther. That they're building it up to as a franchise, which makes sense. Who do we hand off the things to to make it marketable in 10 years and still make this franchise 40 years into it work? It is the Young Avengers. And I, and I do think that, sorry, spoiler alert for people who haven't, you know, watched your movie before you've listened to this podcast. I think that was the whole purpose of having that young T'Challa, especially that young. You can cast whoever you want who's a great actor five years from now. Letitia Wright's led her run as Black Panther to now be the permanent Black Panther going forward that you feel like you build 10 to 15 years on. Well, and he's the perfect age with the Maximoff boys and even like to have like Haley Steinfeld be slightly on the older end. There's a whole crew of them, Kid Loki even, they're just sitting on, they're waiting. And we could talk phase four another time, I'd be happy to. (laughs) But biggest disappointment with phase four is that they just stuck all the young Avengers in there and didn't necessarily give them the next steps they need. But I like what you're saying is like they're holding on to them. They're going to wait and have the opportunity. So maybe they can set uh, Shuri up with Storm and then put them off to the side. <laughs> and then we'll do the Young Avengers. Is that too much to hope for? We haven't really talked about the politics. Clearly, the people making the movies, listening to the Wakanda Forever podcast, they take themselves really seriously. You know, this is like on par with doing the Malcolm X biography film, like, or anything Spike Lee has ever done. They completely see themselves. I think unlike anything else in certainly in the Marvel universe, like you've got Watchmen or something like that's a political thing. But within this, you know, I guess we, anything that touches on, we had our Captain America. So, you know, the new stuff with Falcon and Winter Soldier is touching on some of this as well. But like the fact that this was originally portrayed, and I'm going to channel my brother-in-law, Brian Casey, who has been on the show before Dylan's brother. I was talking about the first Black Panther movie with him. He was like, just the fact that this is a society, it's supposed to be, you know, this techno utopia, but yet they use trial by combat as their main political way of choosing a leader. And it ends up being really important in the film, not only, you know, at the beginning, but this is how Killmonger gains access by, you know, through a loophole in this stupid trial by combat system that it just seems like absolutely insane to want us to. So of course, as soon as Coates starts writing this, He's like critical about maybe we shouldn't even have a monarchy. And that ends up being a whole like arc of his thing of like make it a constitutional monarchy. That there's something weird about this political system that's being portrayed, which is very traditional and theocratic, in fact. <laughs> like, unless the god Bast likes you, then you don't get to be in charge. But yet using this as the vehicle for just because of all the representation stuff or like some modern political statement about oppression. Do you see any tension between those two, this having a very backwards in some way society portrayed as like the utopia that we're all shooting for? Well, why is it backwards, though? That's the question I would say I would throw into that. Because it's trial by combat. 
will that Western society decide to choose who's the thing? Or is it this idea that you're honoring this idea of African ancestry? And if you are left in a world where white people don't show up and put a political system on you, how do you then have your political system grow up? And so that idea of what's valued, is it the idea of the tribal system, the idea of the, that how, the, how the village lives, how those things become a city? And if your village becomes a metropolis, how does that also look different than what would be your feudalistic castle system that becomes your metropolis, right? And I think there, that's why I think there's a little bit of that world of like, tribal camba, is it as weird as far as how that would happen? Does that the thing that remains? I don't know. I think that that's the thing I think I do love, even in the comics, of like, the idea of this world of Bast and this, like, this kind of like that Bast is a large part of that and the spirit realm is a real thing and the ancestors being a part of it is also another thing of like that you're taking African culture and what is important. I think that even comes across the ocean, right? Of like how ancestry is such a foundation of Southern culture and the removal of that is such a part of the dynamic of the issues with the diaspora and that what that does. Like when you're removed from that, who I am and where I came from, and my identity becomes the thing that breaks me. And sorry if I'm kind of rambling, but that's that's a thing that I, I think that I do love about the comics. And I think that was cool as it moves into the movies of this idea of the ancestral plane, that kind of stuff. Even in the new movie of who she sees as her her vision quest, right? The ancestors. Like that idea that, that Shiri, even in that moment with, with Killmonger being that human, is a large part of that like, ooh, that's a cool thing that kind of relates to that black ancestry in that world of like the ancestors determine a little bit of who you are and who leads you and that's who her ancestor is and that's Shiri from the comics you know more so than who we've seen on screen not to be weird Mark in that that moment because I do think that yes you evolve from certain things that would be trial by combat as far as we're going to kill people but if, if, you, if, if, if you said dueling it out is not a thing that existed for quite a long time in the land of European society <laughs> up until you know even you know, 150 years ago as to being very acceptable. But this idea of savages and quotation marks in the, in the jungle fighting it amongst themselves to do a thing is weird versus we go with the pistols at, at noon to shoot each other for our honor is honorable and gentlemanly. No, I, th- I think what Anthony said is, is spot on. I mean, I think what you see with the Black Panther is them trying to hold, they are part of the future. They are leading the, you know, the world with technology and whatnot, but they're trying very hard to hold on to who they are simultaneously. And the reality of the ancestral plane is absolutely crucial to understanding how the Black Panther society kind of operates and how Wakanda, you know, thinks of themselves and how they kind of make decisions about who leads and how do you make decisions about who is, you know, second in command, who's on the council, all the kind of things. So I think what Anthony said is spot on. I think that what you see here is that duality of being technologically advanced while simultaneously always holding on to the ancestors and always looking backwards and always, you know, remaining who you are at the core. And also just the idea of what does a society look like without the impression of whiteness on it is absolutely fascinating. Like, like, what does that society do? Who do they decide are the leaders? How do they decide when to go to war, when not to go to war? That is absolutely fascinating. And that is something that I think remains part of the reason why Black Panther is so crucially important to our understanding of Black comics and just our understanding of the world as Black people. And even say in the movies, think about the idea that in the tribal combat, the real one, in quotation mark, ends with M'Baku yielding. And that's how that's supposed to go. Killmonger is the one who changes it and that idea of, well, this is not supposed to be, I'm taking it to the extreme. 
So even in that society, that version of the MCUs, they de- they took that idea and still tempered it. Where I don't think without Killmonger, no one actually dies in it. You just fight to yield, and that's how that plays out in the modern society version of this ancestral smart ceremony. Any thoughts, Vi, on this topic? I think I totally agree because I think what the films remove is an element of exoticism, which I think had it been done by writers who aren't familiar with the comics or don't kind of see the historical elements that y'all have outlined would become awkward, right? They, they wouldn't have a place there because they're relying on older tropes, older historical ways of thinking that look more like the 60s comic, honestly, which, you know, for all of its uniqueness at the time still heavily relies on kind of almost an oriental or an exotic take on what would become Afrofuturism. I think the films do a magnificent job of not doing that simply because, right, it's not supposed to be, as you've said, it's not supposed to be like a trial by combat where everybody dies all the time. It's not meant to be framed as barbaric. It has other ties and historical ties and a reason for being there. And I think it's massively well done. Um, I had never really considered what you said about Killmonger, that he's going to be the one that breaks the norm. Everybody before him, even M'Baku, is just going to yield because it's not a violent ceremony. I think Killmonger is a fantastic character because he's breaking all kinds of norms, including storytelling ones. But that I'd not thought about before. So now I'm going to have to go back and watch it again because he has an audience while he does it too, right? All the elders are watching and they just let it happen. And I guess maybe maybe that is why. I will say like the thing that I love about the first Black Panther, and I think it plays out in the second one too, is that moment where Killmonger kills himself. That is the crux of like that story and that world. And the fact that that's in a Marvel movie blows my mind still to this day. But they let him say that line. That's in a Disney movie. That happens, right? And there's something amazing in that weird duality of the like who we are and what we should do with this and, and the identity of blackness and all these things that comes into that moment. And I think that the second movie does a great job with this. And I've had some conversations with people on set where, you know, it being in Albuquerque in a place where it's a large POC community, but only 9% black. There's a lot of Latinx and indigenous population here. And having that, some people who were struggling with the idea of like, I watched this movie and it's weird that it's like this, you know, POC on POC fights. And it's like, but that was part of the thing too, of like, that's a cool thing. I think of with the second movie that does play in that land or that world of like, what does it mean to be that other as we face the other thing? And what side do we land on? Namor's like, you've been 500 years and seen the oppression. What do you do with it? Like, it doesn't shy away for all the things. Some things don't work, right? But Kugler swung at a bunch of things when it comes to not shying away from dealing with the real world and these things of like, when you give folks this, fix with this power, what's the responsibility? What's the things that still hurt you? What are the things that still are there? Yeah. and, And what happens when your quote unquote villain is right? Or has points that challenge audience <laughs> preconceptions, that challenge the protagonist. It's amazing. Both movies kind of present something of a, we're going to give you a political philosophical dilemma. You know, maybe Killmonger as the sort of Malcolm X representation as opposed to the Black Panther as the Martin Luther King representation. If you want to, you know, break it down that simply. But like, it's supposed to make you think, but one side clearly goes too far and is using violence in an aggressive way. And so that allows the audience to come down firmly on one side. Even if you might have been sympathetic with some of the things Killmonger was saying, he's called Killmonger. <laughs> he, he murders all these people. So, no, you're not going to get down with that. And You're not going to get down with it, but you're going to at least agree with the idea of 
as a black person in America, it's like, where were you when we were all in chains, man? Where were you when this happened? Like, why weren't you helping us out? You know, what's up, man? Like, what's that about? Any comic, but especially these ones that are more overtly political, when they set something up like as a utopia or as an ideal or whatever, to then have some writer subsequently come along and have characters. And so Coates was great about this, of like saying, what are the places that we could pick on about this? You've, you've tried to set up, you past authors, you are the perfect black representation, perfect king, perfect utopian society. Well, let's have someone come along and say, no, actually, you're still, you know, with your technology obsessed with gadgets. So we're going to have a villain who's sort of representing nature. We're going to have somebody criticize him for being closed off, that you should be out helping the world like this. I don't know what you guys thought. We don't really have too much time to talk about the Namor here, but did you feel like it was a similar thing? Like, yeah, you understand if you get the Namor story and this history of them being colonized and driven into the sea, you know, or, or this was their liberation from that then you can sort of sympathize with him wanting to be left alone. But like when they show up in this movie, it could just be a horror movie, right? When the people are on the boat and these mermaids come up, you're not just like, oh, they have some reasonable points. No, they're the monsters. They're the monsters because they're being introduced. But once you learn the Neymar story and once you know what led him to be who he was, there's a reason why he didn't die at the end because he is such a sympathetic character both in the comics and the realization of him in the film, you realize that he doesn't want to fight. He will fight, but he doesn't want, he's not seeking it out. He comes if you encroach upon his territory. But if you leave him alone, he'll be under the sea. No pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) But he'll be under the sea having a good time, right? And so, yeah, I mean, you're right that at the very beginning, it's kind of a horror movie-esque. It's kind of, Remind you, John Carpenter is the fog or something like that. But like, once you get to know who he is and you get to know his story, you begin to realize there's so much there. There's so much complexity. He's a three-dimensional character. And Shuri understands that. Like, Shuri fights him, obviously, but she understands him, right? And she wrestles whether or not she should go to war with this guy because she knows that this guy has a reasonable, like, way of being and he understands what's going on. And he's right, even though he's wrong. Well, and his villainy sometimes seems superimposed. Like maybe the only reason that the audience isn't totally on his side is because he wants to kill a 19-year-old scientist. Yes, I think that's it. And those lines sometimes feel out of place where he's explaining his history. And then he turns to Shuri and he says, now you see why I have to kill the scientist. And you're like, I don't actually think I do, (laughs) but I understand everything else that you've said. I do think those, I've, I've had discussions about this specific thing by, of like, this is the reason why also Kang works is like when you have time, you're now removed from time, your perspective on what's right and wrong becomes different. That's the thing I think is interesting in this change of who Namor is, of like giving him 500 years of this experience where both T'Challa and Shiri a have great. a very limited experience of that world of like, these people aren't going to change. So I'm just going to fix the thing myself. That's what Kang does. It's like, I've seen all time and this is the right timeline <laughs> for you to exist in. That's why I love that second movie of like, when you see racism and oppression for that long and you still exist, how does that change your perspective on how to treat these people? And that's why, even though we need all the scenes in the second movie of this, that conversation between the Rosses and the kitchen is huge. Like whenever she says like, I dream about every night what I would do with that stuff. You know, it's like, yeah, man, 
That's why you are the bad guy. As the government, you would take all those toys and would kill everyone, and the Wakandans don't. Any other thought? We haven't really touched on the gender stuff. I mean, is there much to say other than just like, there's a lot more representation here? It's revolutionary that his, the primary warriors in Wakanda are women. I cannot tell you how awesome it was to see my young cousins, a little girls, watch Wakanda forever and see black women doing those awesome things. And it's so interesting that that was the decision to be made. Usually those are men in those spaces. They're not like, oh, my feelings are hurt. They're badass fucking women, man. It's awesome women doing these things. It cannot be expressed how absolutely important that was. To watch now Angela Bassett and the character of Ramonda almost legitimize Marvel films and superhero films as art, like from a kind of meta perspective that she's going to win an Oscar for this. She better win the Oscar for this. That is incredible. Like that is a female character. That is a, an actress who is portraying, right? A queen in a superhero film, it, getting all of this attention, like even just removed from the actual story. That is amazing. And I think this film didn't have to go that direction. The original script for it, I don't think was going to have this kind of emphasis on female power and, and necessity kind of dictated that it did. Oh my gosh, it's amazing to watch it play out in real time. And then to couple that with what you're saying, Lawrence, with Fedora and with Shuri, like it's just such an incredible time to have female characters. There has always been a need for it. And this is an amazing stage to watch it play out on because it's the biggest stage in media in superhero media, but in just to have Disney doing it, what a good time to be a superhero movie fan, really. And I do love the fact that Shiri is a Disney princess. That's pretty great. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. I cannot believe that, because I'm pretty sure Angela Bass is going to win this Oscar. Like Everything that I'm looking at is kind of trending in that direction. And I can't believe that the Oscar she's going to win is for a superhero film. Like it, no, it wasn't for love's got to you love's know, got to do with it. Yeah, that's not gonna do her better performance, her great performance. No, it wasn't for that or any of that other number. It's for a superhero film, it's just mind blowing. I think there's still room to mine more feminist philosophy through these films or through maybe I just haven't read all the right comics. But I feel like in terms of there's even a explicit philosopher character who I think might be modeled on Cornel West that Tanashi Coates created. And, you know, you see there's a through line from reading and talking about James Baldwin or whatever to reading and talking about race in these films. I don't see that as strongly with a, like a critique of gender. Like there is, yes, the fact that women are kicking ass. And I certainly don't expect like, oh, now Shuri's in charge. So she's bringing the feminine perspective. Like, I'm not trying to essentialize it like that. In fact, as we've said, she's more of a badass. She's less, at least initially reflective. I don't know. It'd be interesting to explore more. I mean, we get like sort of the mother-daughter scene and stuff. Yeah, I don't think Marvel's a place for that. I I think DC is better because what they did with Wonder Woman, especially in the comics, uh, the films, we'll see what they do with the films. But the recent Wonder Woman comics do a really good job of kind of delving into all of that, like feminist philosophy, gender identity. Marvel can the Marvels. Telling us. Yeah. The Marvels. Marvels you the Mar- so? the- but you think so? You think they bring it in there? Yes. Yeah, hundred percent. Okay. Like, okay. like the, the two the two best things that were made this or the of the three best things made this like two years for Marvel, two of them are centered around female identifying characters. 
is Miss Marvel and WandaVision. And they are cornerstones of that thing. The Marvels is, I think, going to be an amazing movie because I do like all three of those characters as well. And I think that, you know, and I think, Mark, in, in this land of like you go through like with Shuri, you know, especially if she does lead more towards comic version, you know, you're going to see that play out or like you're going to see more of that stuff with Okoye and you have your two Wakanda characters also in that Dormelange world of like one's an angel and one's not. I mean, you're, if that plays out as you go forward, you will see more of that play out. And I think all the things I've mentioned are very organic ways of getting there too. It's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel forced in any way. Like it makes sense that those characters come up. Like Miss Marvel is amazing. That's one of the best things I watched in the last year. It's so good. And it's so like, you know, like the Pakistani identity of that thing is so woven into it. Her being a, a Pakistani woman is so woven into it that land of like her dealing and struggling with that identity of like who I am and how my mother is and my relationship to my mother and, and all that stuff and her grandma, like that's, that's all organically around that. They have to stop being afraid of the intersections and they need to lean in, particularly with like the world of Wakanda characters uh, and where you see like there are queer scenes in there, the LGBT scenes, but they're easily cut because they're five seconds long, right? And they're implicit. If we're going to start pushing gender and we're going to start pushing into sexuality, like I think they, they need to stop being afraid. They need to lean in. And I'm hoping that we see that as they start to bridge into characters and into storylines with actors who have said explicitly, this is what I want to see. This is what I want to see done. Agatha Coven of Chaos has a really cool opportunity to do all of these things and, and kind of dig into the threads that WandaVision left right with a cast that says, I'm game. Let's go. Bringing in Billy Maximoff and having that storyline there. Like, oh, they're so close. They're so close, but they have to jump that hurdle and really commit to it. I'm sorry. I don't see them. We're still talking about the mouse here. We're still talking about Disney, right? (laughs) We are talking about Disney. I don't see them doing it. I just don't see them doing it. That's the reason because DC is more edgy. Like, they'll push the envelope. Sometimes they'll fail, but they'll push the envelope. Marvel... Y'all expect Marvel to do this? I just, I mean, it's like Ms. Marvel. I love the TV show, but it was kiddie. Like, it was a kiddie show. I mean, I just, I don't see them really pushing the envelope as much as we would like for them to push the envelope. Now, I will be happy to come back on in a year and say that I was wrong. And I hope that I'm wrong. I absolutely hope that Viola is right. I hope that Anthony is right. I just don't see it happening because it's still Marvel. Like, so- it's still Disney. Here's two things that will push you that way, though. I think one, it's a slow game. So a thing you have to kind of like, you, you see that. That's why I think you're going to look at phase four and you're going to be like, this is a world of transition in this dealing with bigger things and stuff that maybe are diehard 10 years of folks who dude bros who can't handle that or starting to deal with it, right? <laughs> I, think the, I think the bigger thing that's going to push it, and I think that it's the best thing that could happen to Marvel, is that James Gunn is running DC. <laughs> And I think that, that he, like, like, you think about Peacemaker, you think about the stuff he does, you think about Guardians of the Galaxy, they're going to have to keep up. He is a person who likes to push that edge. And I think Kevin Feige is a person who's willing to do that. You have, I think, the, him getting his power back, Kevin Feige now being more in charge of things again, like back to Iger world, there will be more of that push to then, let's do this thing. Let's, let's be bold. Let's make choices. The fact that he chose, he knew he was going to do Black Panther when he started doing the beginning sketchings of, of things when they started doing Iron Man is huge. That's a thing that, you know, he was already thinking about that as a thing at the inception. I'm going to do this and I'm going to get to this point. That dude was going to also, I think, is willing to go that place. And I think you see it already in phase four stuff. 
And now he's going to be less chained to the product and having to make a bunch of stuff to make money. They can now can go back to making stuff to compete with James Gunn. Clearly, the the Howard the Duck property that eventually comes out will fulfill <laughs> oh, all the gosh. all the cutting edge stuff that you're looking. All right, for. and, and um, that's the end. So let's it's time to end. Time to end right there. <laughs> I hope that there's another film or some excuse six months or a year from now that we can get this exact group together and continue this conversation. I think if to the extent that any of you are able to hang around folks can go to patreon.com slash pretty much pop and maybe we'll uh, at least I have a few threads I want to pull out with whoever will talk to me that from what came up today thanks to all three of you and thanks for listeners thanks Thank guys you. thanks for Thank supporting us much. thanks for supporting us thanks guys get more pretty much pop at pretty much pop.com get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash pretty much pop pretty much pop is part of the partially examined life podcast network and it's also presented by openculture.com